We are in Acts chapter 17 this morning. And if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're reading the first 15 verses this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, without the help of your spirit, these words will not be alive to us as they should be. We pray for the graces that we need uh, to hear as well as speak this word this morning. May, as Tom reminded us, this word uh, go deep into us and bear the fruit you intend it to in our lives. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But as the Jews were jealous and taking uh, some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed not with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. You may take your seats. There is a story told in, the, in some parts of the Old South. A man drove up to a gas station uh, as he was in a town over uh, the weekend on business. He was seeking a place to worship, and so he asked the owner if there was a church of Jesus in town. And the owner paused and he thought out loud. Well, there's Joe Coffin's Baptist Church right there on Main Street. And Sam Robinson's Methodist Church is down the street from there. And, and then there's Tim Funderburk's Presbyterian Church. But those folks don't get along. Well, come to think of it, 
I don't think there is a church of Jesus here in town. Now there is a hunger uh, for a place where people uh, who are broken and tired can be welcomed by Jesus, just as the woman caught in adultery or Levi, the tax collector. A church that gives itself away, even as Jesus gave his life away on the cross, that's known uh, for service in the community, the kind of service that causes people to wonder, why would you do this? Only such a church will break uh, through the cynicism and despair of our time. Only such a church will be able to winsomely communicate the truth of the gospel to a generation who denies the very existence of truth. And only such a church will bring healing and hope to a community and a city. And when such a church proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will either provoke commitment or opposition. The gospel message either makes enemies or it makes friends. When it's heard, it doesn't leave people in a neutral place. And that's what we see in our text this morning. The church turns the world upside down. And it's still possible for the church to turn the world upside down. Uh, To be known again as a church uh, that impacts a city, that sees lives uh, changed, that introduces a measure of transformation uh, where it comes. Now, if you're here and you're skeptical or cynical about Christ or Christianity, I'm glad you're here and I hope you'll listen carefully because the gospel message is not only a message of healing and hope, but it's a subversive message. It isn't come to church and live a respectable and comfortable life. It is not come to church and uh, hear a message about self-help to improve your life or to solve a personal problem. No, the gospel challenges and exposes our idols and empty hopes. Now, the gospel provokes opposition or commitment. It's 80-50, and Paul and Silas have been, well, escorted out of Philippi. And they travel about 100 miles north of Thessalonica, on the main uh, road, the main Roman road, the Via Ignatia, and one of the, it's one of the primary roads. And when they arrive at Thessalonica, Paul sets up shop. By trade, he's a tent maker, and he sets up shop there as he does in many places in order to have the opportunity uh, to meet people. And Luke tells, chooses to tell us only about the last three successive Saturdays he's in the city. We know from Paul's letters, if you read them and look for references uh, to Thessalonica, that Paul was there longer than that. In the letter to the Philippians, he writes this, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And we're told that Paul continued his pattern of going to the synagogue. He opened up the scriptures to the various places that speak of the Messiah. He shows them that the Messiah would have to suffer before he entered his glory. He relates the life 
of Jesus, his public ministry, uh, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. And he tells them that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. And he summons them to respond in faith, to flee the coming wrath of God, uh, to embrace new life and the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And large numbers of people in Thessalonica respond. Some of them are ethnic Jews. Some of them are ethnic Gentiles who fear God and worship in the synagogue. And more than a few are socially connected women with deep pockets. And Luke is showing us that the gospel uh, is embraced not just by marginal people like slaves, but by all classes and strata of society, by people of various ethnicities. And the response in Thessalonica was so great that it provoked jealousy among the Jews. They had lost not only many members of the synagogue, but they had lost some of the wealthiest supporters as well. And so they respond with violence. They head out into the marketplace, and Luke uh, uses words that literally mean finds marketplace men. They're unemployed uh, day laborers uh, who are known as malcontents and agitators. They're like many of the men who live in the West Bank of Palestine or in the ghettos of many European uh, cities. They're people who are marginalized, for whom the stratified Roman society uh, reduced them to a catch-as-catch-can uh, work. They formed a mob, and a riot broke out. They rushed into the house of Jason, where Paul was staying, and most likely Jason is a uh, Jewish convert to Christianity. They didn't find Paul or Silas, and so they drug Jason and some others to the rulers. Ironically, I hope you can appreciate the irony of this, that they uh, who instigated the riot uh, charge uh, Paul with stirring up trouble all over uh, the world and proclaiming that there's another king. That was treason. It's a very serious crime uh, in the Roman Empire. These men were enemies of the Roman order and the emperor cult. And the officials demand that Jason uh, provide a guarantee that Paul and Silas would leave the city. And so Paul and Silas, as soon as night uh, comes, are escorted out of the city uh, by the Christians. They are banished from Thessalonica. This is probably what Paul's referring to in his letter when he says, Satan hindered us from returning to the city. As they reach uh, Berea, Paul and Silas once again proclaim the gospel in the synagogue. And the Bereans were eager uh, to hear them. They searched the scriptures investigating uh, the claims that Paul made, and many people, both Jews and Greeks, embraced the gospel. When the Jews in Thessalonica, who were hostile to Christianity, learned that Paul was in Berea, they showed up, and once again, they stirred up antagonism, and a second riot broke out, and some of the new Christians took Paul to the coast and put him on a ship for Athens. We should expect that when we communicate the gospel to people, that it won't leave people in a neutral place. Some uh, people will rejoice and commit to Christ and other people will become hostile. We should expect that. We shouldn't be surprised by it or even discouraged uh, by it, that not everyone is going to respond positively uh, to the gospel. The gospel provokes opposition or 
commitment. It divides people. But why does the gospel provoke riots in these two cities? Well, it's because the gospel is subversive. Now, the message of the gospel is not a political message calling for an uprising against the existing social order. Paul taught that Christians were to honor and submit to the governing authorities. Christians were to be model citizens under any form of human government. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his kingship is not of this world. It's not a geopolitical uh, entity. But how is the gospel subversive? Well, the gospel challenges the false gods and empty hopes to give us better ones. It challenges our false gods and empty hopes to give us better ones. Every culture, in fact, every person has something they put their hope in. And you can see it here in this passage. Um, All of the New Testament, all all the narrative we have from the birth of Jesus on to the end of the New Testament takes place in what historians call the Pax Romana. It was a period of 200 years. It was the golden age of peace and order and prosperity and stability. And indirectly, the gospel, as Paul preaches it, challenges that claim. Paul taught that Jesus would come and bring judgment on unprepared human beings. That Jesus would establish his kingdom and bring an end uh, to wars and injustice, to poverty and illness, to every form of evil. And he would establish an enduring uh, kingdom uh, that was based on righteousness and justice and peace. Now the announcement that Jesus is the anointed king uh, violated the emperor's decree against predicting uh, the coming of a new king or a new kingdom. Anything that said the emperor would be supplanted or judged, it was forbidden uh, to talk like that. And understandably, the rulers at Thessalonica were worried that if word got back to Rome, the emperor might actually censure the city. That's why they banned them uh, from the city. But just how is that relevant to us? Well, Rome promised and the emperor embodied the hope of the good life now and peace and a bright and glorious future. Worshiping the emperor as a god was essential uh, for this to continue. And we're all like these ancient Thessalonians in that all of us have something that we worship. Everyone, no matter how irreligious and secular they may seem. And even religious people who claim uh, to be worshiping one God often in reality are worshiping something uh, else, something that we think will bring us the good life, something that we believe will bring us happiness or security or prosperity. We, as Pascal said, all have an idea about happiness and cannot reach it. We perceive the image of truth and possess only a lie. We set out optimistically uh, to achieve happiness, and most of it uh, to do that through wealth or success or fame or relationships. And then eventually we discover there's a hitch, that happiness has to rest on a foundation big enough for our whole lives to rest upon. 
and there aren't very many available foundations and it's often uh, when our hopes begin to crumble that we recognize that our foundation's inadequate. Take the competitive and aggressive businessman whose life is meaningful and happy as long as uh, he's on top, as long as he's closing deals and making money and rising uh, in his uh, career. His whole identity is wrapped up into that, into profits uh, and successful uh, business uh, deals being closed, and it's just inconceivable to him that his life could become something else. But then his business crashes, and so does his life. His business success is not a big enough uh, foundation to build his life on. Becky Pippert uh, relates uh, the account of a woman she knew was a very lovely model. And the model once said to her, the only bargaining chip I have is my looks. If that goes, there's nothing left. But can beauty buy happiness? What happens if she still gets everything she wants and she's not content? What will she do when she loses her beauty because of age or illness? Another friend has uh, tied their happiness to their lover, and they're crushed when their lover uh, abandons them for someone else. And we need to ask ourselves, on what uh, do we uh, have our happiness set upon? What would happen if it was taken away from us? If it's a high income, it's the marks of comfort and pleasure, if it's physical uh, beauty or success, then these ought to be able to sustain us through a crisis. But clearly, they cannot. These things are not wrong in and of themselves. They're just not adequate as foundations in our lives. And when these things crumble, uh, what uh, and our sense of happiness and security in life falls apart, uh, the irony is not that we ask, well, is this really an adequate foundation for my life? Instead, what we say is, there must not be a God because I'm so miserable. If there was a God, he would care about this. He would have never let this uh, happen. And we're not able to actually consider that we're miserable because our foundation is inadequate. The living God summons you to turn uh, from your empty quest for happiness uh, that's built on sand and realize that he alone can bring you the happiness that you seek. It's a happiness that's built on the foundation of being in a right relationship, a reconciled uh, relationship with God that can only be yours through Jesus Christ. Have you taken that step? It's such an important thing uh, to do to take that step. But there's uh, more. Accepting Christ as Lord means there's new priorities and loyalties as we grow in becoming mature followers of Christ. Over time, this transforms our personal relationships. Husbands and wives, instead of seeking or wanting their spouse to meet all their needs, seek to serve each other, even if their needs go unmet. Instead of trying uh, to change the other person into what we think uh, we need or uh, want, uh, we accept them just as we are. Men are respectful in their treatment of women, relating to them with purity and protection. 
Children learn how to honor their parents. Work and personal ethics arise above what's expected or what is merely acceptable. And disciples uh, seek to influence others by serving them. Socially and politically, the gospel is subversive because it has an alternative view of human life that rests on a fundamentally different truths and commitments and ideas than the current version of, well, you might call it a secular uh, creed. That creed changes in generations and seasons, but there's always this alternative creed that people want to build a good society on. To confess Jesus as Lord is to relativize. It puts into place and and reduces the importance of everything else. And it challenges all the hopes we might have as individuals or as a group that we're going to find peace and security, horizontal justice and righteousness, or any kind of golden age apart from God. Apart from recognizing that humans are made in his likeness and he has moral expectations on us as individuals and collectively. Christians are to be fiercely loyal to King Jesus. And that means that they will resist the cult of personality, whether it emerges in the the public political life of a nation or in the life of a church. They grasp that no person, no party, no ideology, no form of government, and no economic system can usher in the golden age. Only King Jesus can do that. And he will when he returns, and he brings judgment upon everything that's out of align with his purposes, everything that exalts itself, everything that is evil, all violence, dishonesty, uh, theft. It's because the gospel is that Jesus is Lord that it provokes a response and it challenges the foundations of our personal lives and of our society. Uh, This is how it turns the world upside down. And it still can and still does. But that brings us to the last thing I want us to ask. Are we seeing that happen in our day? Is it happening in our community? Is it happening in our metro area? If not, why not? Well, could the answer be just as simple as this, that for the gospel to do that, it has to be heard? The gospel has to be heard. And I have a theory about perhaps why it's not heard as much or as clearly as it needs to be. And so here it is. Bear with me for just a moment. Much of the life of the church is like an island. Now, over time and generations, living on an island shapes the way you think, the way you live, the way you perceive reality. Uh, Isolation makes you, by definition, uh, different. It sets you apart. And uh, you have a, a greater sense that there's those people who live on the mainland, and then there's us on the island. There's their way of life, And there's our way of life. And often island living is peaceful, serene, undisturbed, largely disconnected uh, from the larger world. Take Prince Edward's Island, for example. It's off the Canadian uh, eastern coast. And it enjoyed such an existence. It was once described as two huge uh, beaches divided by potato fields. 
And islanders were distanced from the chaos of uh, the real world by nine miles of ocean. The only way you could get there was a ferry. And from uh, such uh, unconnected serenity arose Anne of Green Gables. Red-haired, pigtailed, freckled, and innocent. And she became a powerful and, and defining symbol of the life of the culture. And many of you know she was also fictional. And paradoxically, her rising fame is what attracted outsiders. In 1997, uh, uh, after a uh, very intense uh, and divisive uh, referendum, uh, the Confederation Bridge uh, was built that connected Prince Edward Islands uh, to the mainland of Canada. it had 185 structural components. It was built on land and carried out to sea, and these elements were each placed within a quarter of an inch of accuracy to where they needed to be placed. The bridge cost $1 billion, and many residents said it cost much more, because as soon as the bridge was completed, you can just imagine, the island was flooded with tourists people who knew nothing about the way of life that had been there on the island for generations. Uh, And actually, it was Anna Green Gable's name, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, yes, her name uh, resulted in it being used from everything from T-shirts to potato chips uh, to lodging to golf courses and uh, restaurants. And... uh, And it was hard on the island. Many of the residents on the island were not at all happy with the change that came uh, with the bridge. But there were others who saw that there were new hopes and possibilities uh, for the island. Well, the church is often like that. It's an island isolated from the community, from the people who need uh, the gospel. And in many places in the church, uh, it doesn't think a bridge can be built. Many people don't want a bridge uh, to be uh, built. And the walls of isolation become mirrors in the life of a church. Uh, Because when the church isn't looking outward, it ends up looking inward. And the motion in the church, instead of moving outward, uh, becomes circular. Now, it can be very comfortable. It can be safe. The world's a fallen and dangerous uh, place, and undoubtedly that's part of why churches like to be islands. And to build bridges so that the gospel might be heard, well, it's going to bring with it change and challenges, and well, to be honest, there'll be conflict when you choose to do that. Most church people know that. A bridge will change everything. Isn't that what Paul and Silas are doing here? Really, isn't that what the whole book of Acts is? Is that we see Jesus before he ascends to heaven say, I want you to go and bridge to people who haven't seen me, who haven't heard about me, who don't know me. Uh, I'm sending you the Spirit so that you'll be that bridge first in Jerusalem and then to Judea and then to Samaria and then, and then out beyond that. And really the chronicle of the book of Acts is how those bridges are built. 
Sometimes God pushes reluctant apostles over a bridge and says, I want you to meet these people. I want you to go to people you wouldn't naturally go to and talk to them. Uh, and you will be surprised. Some of them I have prepared so well, they are ready uh, to hear uh, that message. And then there are others in places like Thessalonica and Berea who will not be responsive, who will actually be uh, hostile. If the church is going to hear the gospel in a way that shakes it, we'll have to build bridges. That's, that's my theory. And there are two kinds of bridges that churches need to build. Relational bridges and bridges of service. Relational bridges take time. And perhaps one way to begin is simply to include somebody who's not a part of the church in something you already enjoy doing or find a group of people who enjoy doing what you enjoy uh, doing, whether it's a cycling club or a running club, or inviting a friend over uh, to watch a ball game on uh, Saturday. It might be finding somebody to exercise uh, with. And uh, churches together can uh, build a relational bridge. And they do it usually by finding a need in their community that they can minister to. It might be supporting people in their grief or helping them through divorce, or offering to give them some skills in parenting or enriching their marriage. And building a bridge of service usually requires focus, and often it's helpful to figure out at least one thing, maybe the one thing the church does well and build on that. So I know churches who decided they would build a bridge into their local elementary school. And so one or two of them went and met with the principal and asked, you know, we want to serve you in some ways. There's something we could do for you. And the principal thinks he's probably surprised. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked him such a question before, and he's surprised. And he starts thinking, well, you know, we need some mulch spread on the playground. Uh, do you think you could do that for us? It's something that either is in his budget, but his budget, budgets and schools are always tight. And so the principal's happy to, well, let's try that. And then what that led to in the church is that the church decided to bring coffee and donuts on the first day of school for teachers. And then on a parent-teacher conference, they brought lunches, because it's a very busy day in the life of most uh, teachers. And they brought them Chick-fil-A lunches. Just simple things like that. And over the course of not a few weeks, but actually a few years, the church was welcomed into that school, invited to come into that school, and talked to the parents about parenting. Uh, and it became a tremendous opportunity for relationships uh, to flourish. Isn't this what Jesus is calling us to? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord,
Uh, we thank you for what uh, we see here, for the power of the gospel. And we thank you for the life of the Lord Jesus that's more than sufficient as the foundation uh, for our lives. Lord, uh, we ask that uh, you would help us uh, to walk out the things we've seen uh, today. Lord, where we need to search the scriptures and see if this is so, may we do that as well. For we pray in Christ.